Good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to be with you this morning. We've seen the goodness of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning, or you can follow along uh, on the screen behind me. We're glad you could be with us again if you're a guest today. Um, you came on a great Sunday because you can meet lots of people uh, at our Connect Group Expo outside and uh, find a way that you can get connected if you're looking for that today. Um, but we would love for you to just uh, make yourself at home this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. The first 15 verses this morning. And I want to invite you uh, to just pause with me in silence for a moment to prepare our hearts to receive the word before we read God's text for us today. Let's pause. Hear the reading of God's word. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who, were, and those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, and so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Dangerous Worship. Dangerous Worship. Let's pray before we begin. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us to notice you this morning. You are already among us. You are here in this place. You promised to be among us. And so, God, we pray you would open our hearts, our eyes, all that we are to notice you, to be drawn towards you, to give you our full attention. May you be lifted up in this place through your word, through your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
A few years ago, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to participate uh, in this thing at, that the city puts on called the Lakeland Citizens Academy. And uh, you may have heard of it before. I think it still happens. This was a while ago. This is probably 10 years ago. Uh, but the Lakeland Citizens Academy was help, helpful to kind of let the citizens know how the city runs. And, and you get to see all the ins and outs. And it's a free program. So if you're willing to take a Thursday night, they will educate you on the city. Uh, and it, it was a really fun experience. You got to go to different places and field trips to see how things work. And, and so we're going to, to different departments and different places all across the city. Uh, but my favorite place that we went was the Lakeland Fire Department. And it was fun because I grew up as a kid who just adored firefighters. Like my uncle was a firefighter and, and I just thought they were the coolest thing. They had the coolest job and they got to use all the great gadgets and stuff. And so it was like being a kid again. I'm going to the fire department and we show up and, and they show us all the stuff. They show you all the gadgets on the truck and they, they let you shoot one of the fire hoses and you get to see how far it will shoot and how much water's coming out. I mean, it was incredible. It was a great experience. And my favorite thing that really stuck with me the most, though, was this. It was their outfits. I mean, they, they described to us what it's like to get a call for service, right? When you call the fire department and, and they're coming to help somebody, they have about two minutes to go from sitting on the couch to getting up, getting dressed, getting all their gear on and out the door in two minutes. All the parents said amen, right? This, could you imagine your kids just get up and move, dress out the door in two minutes, I was just, I was praising the Lord as I watched. It was incredible. But here's the thing. They have to put on so much equipment. I mean, they describe to us how the, you know, they've got these helmets that are fireproof. They've got masks. They've got backpacks. They've got fireproof coats. They've got all this stuff. And what you notice as they're describing it and they're, they're showing you how it all works is the level of preparation was related to the level of danger that they were about to enter. Right? They, they were getting ready to, to enter into a dangerous situation where if they did not prepare, they would die. And other people would die. And so they had to prepare. They, they had to be ready to go into that kind of situation. Now imagine this morning when you were getting up for church, instead of putting on your dress or your jeans or, or whatever it is that you're wearing this morning, you grabbed a, a fireproof helmet you put on a gas mask. You, you put on a, you know, a, 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 you know, a coat that will, will protect you from flames. And you went to church looking like that. Well, maybe it's not that far from what it could be. There's an author by the name of Annie Dillard, and, and she writes very provocatively about this, about worship services. She says this. I love this. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does anyone believe a word of it? It is madness to wear straw hats and velvet gloves to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should be issuing life preservers and signal flares. They should strap us to our pews. Now, it sounds almost comical because we're so casual, right? We're so casual, but I thought for a moment about this morning, I said, what if we just put up signs on the doors as you came in and it said, beware of God. Beware of God. 
Like it, it would shock us because it's so unusual, it's so strange to us, but in fact, uh, maybe, just maybe, our view of God is a little bit too safe. It's a little bit too safe. See, many of us in the late modern world, we, we've kind of domesticated God. We, we've made him docile, we've made him safe, we've made him soft. We've made God into our image of what it looks like for us in our world and how we relate to each other. And, and it's interesting because you look over church history and in the ancient church, the pendulum had swung in the opposite direction. In the ancient church, people were terrified of God. In fact, if you go to any of these ancient cathedrals, it, it looks like catacombs. I mean, it looks like a dungeon. It's just terrifying to be in the presence of God. And now we've swung the other way in the last hundred years to now most of our churches look like Starbucks. Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I like Starbucks and you probably like coffee and other things. And, and so we walk in with our flip-flops and our t-shirts and our coffee and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Hear me on that. But it does say something that, that should maybe cause us to pause and reflect for a moment. What does our worship say about what we believe about God? Right? The way we worship God speaks to what we believe about who he is. And what we find in this text is this text starts to push against all of our assumptions about who God actually is because we've made him into our own friendly, safe comfortable God. As C.S. Lewis put, God isn't safe, but he is good. He is good. And so that's where I want to look at this morning. We're continuing this series through the book of First, or, uh, Second Samuel, and last week we looked at how David establishes his kingdom officially, right? We did a quick survey over the first five chapters to kind of catch us up, and, and what we looked at is how David's kingdom, as he's coming into his kingship, is very different than any other kingdom. Because God is calling David to establish a kingdom that is different than the world. And so we looked at those kingdom marks. What does it mean to have the kingdom of God in our midst? And now that David has established his kingdom, now he's starting to establish the worship of God. And so David wants worship to be established at the center of this kingdom. And so in order for David to establish worship at the center of the kingdom, he has to go get the ark of God, because central to that worship was the ark. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the ark was this small wooden box that God had commanded them to make back in Exodus. And, and uh, the way it worked was it was a, a symbol of God's presence with them as his people. And so the ark was for decades now sitting in storage. It was in a storage unit for about 30 years waiting for someone to go get it. And it was in this guy's house, Abinadab. And so Abinadab had been holding on to the ark to try to keep it safe while there was all this turmoil, turmoil and war and, and people were dying and people were changing over and all this stuff was happening. It was sitting at Abinadab's house for 30 years. And David says, I want us to go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. I want it to be the center of our worship. And so here we see David is bringing it home to Jerusalem. And when he does that, what happens is we learn a lot about worship. We learn a lot about how this true worship happens, what it says about God, and how we respond to him. And so that's what I want to look at today. Who is God really? And what does it look like to worship him really? So let's first look at the ark of God. If you're taking notes this morning, 
the ark of God is the first point. Look at me at verse 1. It opens like this. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, for instance, think about this, or for a second, think about this. David is bringing an army to go get the ark. 30,000 people. Could you imagine? 30,000 soldiers, the best soldiers, it says, in Israel, show up at your house, knock on the door, and say, we're here for the ark. Like, what? I mean, this is just a, a parade marching down the street. And as they're marching towards Abinadab's house, they're getting excited. The, the expectations are rising because what this means for them is God is coming back to Jerusalem. God is making his entrance with them. And so they're celebrating, they're rejoicing. And as they start to celebrate, there's kind of a spontaneous worship service that breaks out. And this isn't, you know, this isn't one of those worship services that are about silence and contemplation and quietness. I mean, this, this is a shouting service right now. I mean, people break out the tambourines. They're singing. They're dancing. They're celebrating. It turns into a party on the way to Abinadab's house. What leads them to that kind of worship? Notice what it says about the ark. It says about the ark, which is called by the name of the Lord called by the name of the Lord. See, someone's name in the Old Testament represented their character. It represented who they were and what they did, right? And so when it's saying that the ark is called by the name of the Lord, the ark is representing something about God. This is who he is. And so we got to pause for a second. What, what's actually in the wooden box that's covered in gold? What, what's in this box? Well, there's three things. You ready? And these three things speak to us about who God is. He's a ruler, he's a revealer, and he's a redeemer. He's a ruler, he's a revealer, and he's a redeemer. The ruler, if you look inside the box, you would have found uh, this, this uh, jar of manna that as God was leading his people through the wilderness, he was providing for them. He was ruling and reigning over them. And he wanted, him, or he wanted them to always remember that I am the one who provides for you. I am the one who has cared for you. I am the one who rules and reigns over your whole life. I am your ruler. And if you also look in there, you'll see that there's two tablets of stone. And written on those tablets of stone are the commandments that God had given to his people. And he said, I want you to remember that this is me revealing myself to you. I'm not the God who hides in a corner. I'm the God who's come towards you. And given you my word, I've given you my life, I've given you who I am, I've revealed myself, right? And then lastly, if you look in there, you'll see a rod or a staff that was Aaron's rod. And Aaron, uh, his, his rod budded, which, which means out of this, this wooden staff comes life. And it was to represent to them that God is a redeemer, that he brings death or brings life out of death. He, he brings fruit out of barrenness. And so he wanted them to remember, this is how I work in your life. This is who I am. I'm your ruler. I'm your revealer. I'm your redeemer. And when you realize that about God, when you realize that's the God who's coming towards you, that's the God who is redeeming you, loving you, revealing himself to you, you can't help but worship. You can't help but celebrate. You can't help but erupt in this celebration. And what happens here is they begin to celebrate his name. Because worship 
begins and ends with God's character. It begins and ends with who he is. Or to put it another way, worship is about God, not us. Worship is about God, not us. See, there's a reason that in the beginning of our worship services, we have a thing that's called the call to worship which is a scripture from God's word that is calling us to worship. That's to symbolize to us that worship is happening because God has revealed himself to us, right? God has come to us, told us who he is, and now worship is our response to him. But it begins with him. It's about him. It's not about us. It's not about what we come in here with. It's not about what we think about. It's not what we care about. Worship is our response to a God who has revealed himself. But listen, in a consumer culture, that is really difficult. It's really difficult because your whole life, from the beginning you're born, you're being trained in a culture that says the world is about you. That life is about you. And so everywhere you go, you're evaluating, you're, you're, you're critiquing, you're wondering, how does this fit into my life? How do they care about my interests? And then you walk into the church and you do the same thing. I do it, you do it. We're, we're thinking about, you know, what can they do for my kids? Is the music good enough? Is the preaching good enough? Did someone say hi to me? Do they have the right night for my small group? Do they have this? Do they have that? Is the coffee good enough? Like these are all the things that are floating through our minds because we're trained in a culture that says life is about you. But in worship, it's not about us. I mean, what if you came to worship And you said, it's just not about me. What if you came to worship and you didn't care if anybody said hi to you? What if you, I mean, that's not a good thing, but what if you came to worship and you didn't care what song we sang? What if you came to worship and you thought, I'm just glad to be in the house of the Lord because this is the God who saved me. What if you came to worship and it wasn't about calling attention to all your problems and issues and needs, and you just said, I want to call attention to God. I want my heart to be drawn towards Him. See, the rest of our life is all about calling attention to ourselves. What if for just a few moments, our hearts were called to attention with God? The God who's among us, this God who rules and reigns over us and his goodness has provided all of our needs. This God who's chosen to reveal himself rather than keep himself from us. This God who's redeemed us from the depths of all of our sins, brought life out of death. This is the God we worship. And when we show up with that approach, that this isn't about me at all. I don't come to church for me. I come to church for him. I worship him, not myself. That's when the celebration begins to happen. That, that, that's when you start to dance. That, that's when you raise your hands. That's when the tambourines break out. We don't have any tambourines because we're for ourselves. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. The, the reason we struggle to worship is because our attention is on us. It's on us. We all worship something or someone, right? The word worship in English literally means worth-ship. It's, it's assigning worth or value. It's saying that this thing has value in my life. This person has value in my life. And we all do it in different ways, right? We, we, we may uh, assign value and worth to our kids, our career, our, our house, our possessions, whatever it may be. But we have these things in our life that, that have an inordinate value. 
that they have ultimate worth in our life. And whatever that thing is, it has your worship. And what God is saying in worship is, I am calling you to myself to take your attention and your value and your worth off of those things and to put it on me. To put it on me. He's saying, I I want all of you. I want all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's here among us and he wants all of us. But yet when we come into his presence, there's a danger. There's a real danger. And this is the second point, the fear of God. The fear of God. The story goes on to describe that now that they're at Abinadab's house, they, they load up the ark and they put it on a cart, this new cart that they have. And they're all excited. They, they put it on a new cart and they've got these oxen. And, and then two of Abinadab's sons, uh, Uzzah and Ahio, they get chosen to be the ones to lead the way. Right? And so you can imagine 30,000 soldiers following behind Uzzah and Ahio, and they're next to the cart, and they're smiling, they're celebrating, things are going great, and then it takes a shocking turn in verse 6. It says this, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. The music scratches, the dancing halts, all 30,000 pairs of eyes are now looking at Uzzah at the front of this parade, and they're wondering what happened to him, why is he on the ground dying? I mean, it must have been complete silence, complete stillness, confusion, the party is over. What happened? I mean, why did the Lord strike down Uzzah? I mean, when you first look at it, you, at first glance, it, it's offensive, right? It, it's offensive to think that, well, why, why did this make sense to God, that, that he should strike this man down? I mean, think about it practically. Uzzah's just trying to help God, right? He's just trying to help him. I mean, he, he notices that the oxen are stumbling, and, and so he notices the ark's tipping over. It's about to fall onto the ground and go into that nasty mud that they're trampling through. And so he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to reach out. I'm just going to help God and put him back on the, on the oxen cart, right? Why would God get so angry? And it says it's for this reason. It says it's because of his error. Now, what was his error? Well, his error began way before he reached out his hand to take hold of the ark. See, if you go back to Exodus 25, you realize there were specific instructions that God gave them to make sure that this didn't happen. And the instructions went like this. The ark was to be carried when it was transported. In other words, no carts. And it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. And the shoulders of the priests would have these these poles that they would carry it on. And the poles would go through these rings that were on the side of the ark. And so in other words, you can, you can picture it, four priests carrying these poles on their shoulder with the ark above them. And in other words, there was no cart, there were no oxen, and the ark was supposed to be covered and untouched so that no one could see it and no one could touch it. They didn't follow any of those rules. And here's Uzzah, a priest of God, who didn't follow any of the rules for this very reason, because God knew, God knew that all of that was to communicate his holiness, and it was to protect them from this very situation. Because God knew, when the unholy touches the holy, it's deadly. When the unholy touches the holy, it's deadly. 
Now listen, everybody knows about the five-second rule, right? <laughs> everybody knows about the five-second rule? I mean, the five-second rule, if you somehow missed it, it means this. If, if something falls on the ground, if food falls on the ground, you have five seconds. That's the limit. Five seconds to pick it up, and if it's less than five seconds, you can eat it. No problem, right? I see some of you shaking your head. I mean, this, this is really debated. Now, what's funny to me is to watch parents evolve each child. You know, the first child with parents, you pick it up and you throw it immediately in the trash, right? No kid of mine is going to eat something off the ground. The second kid, you have to think about it. Second kid, you pick it up, you blow it off, you, you maybe wipe it off, you look at it, ah, it's not too bad, give it back to the kid. Third kid, you just rub some spit on it and then give it back, right? You do, it doesn't matter. Who cares? They won't even notice, right? But th- this is how it is. The five-second rule has been so debated, they had to actually, at the University of Rutgers, they they decided to uh, come up with a scientific research study to, to test it if it's real. Shocker, what they found in this scientific research study is bacteria does in fact immediately go onto the food depending on the kind of food. Bottom line of the study was this, your floor is dirty. <laughs> it, it took a lot of money and time for them to find out your floor is dirty. But here's, here's my point. The... Uh, a theologian who, who wrote about this text, he, he had this great question. He said, but who said the filth on the floor is worse than the filth in our hands? Who, whoever said that? See, Uzzah is thinking, I'm going to save God from the filth and the mud and the nasty muck on the ground. I'm going to save him from that. But he never thought, my hands are worse than that. Who I am in my sin and my brokenness and my shame and my filth, it is worse than whatever God's going to experience in the mud. And the reason, the reason he didn't get it is because it become too familiar. See, we learned earlier in the text that Uzzah was a son of Abinadab. And remember, the ark had been at Abinadab's house for 30 years. For 30 years, Uzzah had grown up with the ark in his living room. Right? He, he was a pastor's kid with the ark in his house. He, he, he was around the things of God so much. He was so familiar with it. It had become common to him. It had become trivial to him. It certainly wasn't holy to him. And holiness means uncommon. It means unique. It means different. Right? And so the things of God, the ark of God, had become so familiar to him, he felt like, oh, it's just the ark. It's just, it's just God's stuff. It's just Jesus' stuff. He becomes so familiar with God, he lost a healthy fear of God. This was his deadly error. This was his error. See, true worship trembles. It trembles at God's holy presence. It trembles at his presence. There's a real spiritual danger, especially if you've been around the church a long time, and especially if you're in ministry, there's a real spiritual danger to be too familiar with the things of God. Eugene Peterson had a fitting warning here. He says this, and I love it. He says, Uzzah doesn't worship, he functions. Uzzah doesn't worship, he functions. He manages a religious business. Ouch. In other words, what Peterson is saying is many of us have learned how to function rather than worship. We've learned how to function. We've learned how to help God out a little bit. 
Right? When, when God gets in need and, and the church is saying, I need volunteers or we want you to sign up for this or there's another thing you got to do, you know, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to give him one Sunday out of the month. Give him my time. He needs my help. Or if God needs help paying his bills, I guess I'll write him a check and I'll, I'll help God out because he needs help paying his bills. Or if God needs someone to kind of come check on him and make sure he's okay and that he's still there and make sure I know that, or he knows that I love him and I care about him, I guess I'll show up. Right? We, we, we learn how to function. We learn how to get things done and do things and have kind of religious activity. But we miss worship. We've lost the wonder of worship. We've lost the awe and the reverence of a holy God who doesn't fit into our boxes. Right? What, what does it mean to have a, a healthy fear of the Lord? Because the scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom, right? But often people think the fear of the Lord is like a fear of judgment or a fear of punishment or, or I'm going to be like the next Uzzah. I'm going to touch something wrong and I'm going to blow up. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I should be afraid and terrified. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is much deeper than that, much more intimate than that. In fact, the fear of the Lord is, is the sense of awe and wonder, which is the exact opposite of familiarity. When you're familiar with something, you, you yawn over it. When you're familiar with something, you kind of doze off. When you're familiar with something, you, you don't really care about it. You, your heart isn't engaged in it. When, when you are familiar with something, you just don't seem to worry about it. You're, you're, not, you're not focused on it. It doesn't really have your attention because you're just so familiar but the fear of God is different. The fear of God is, is living in the reality that this God is unlike anyone else in my life. This God is someone I can't figure out. This God goes beyond all my categories. This God can't fit into my boxes. There might be a box that I have, but he's not in it. There is something about this God that's different. Do you hear that? And when you have that fear of the Lord, this awe, this wonder, you just stand back in awe. And you say, this God is holy. You, you fall down and wonder and say, this God is holy. You lift up your hands and you surrender saying, this God is holy. There's a reason the angels in heaven, all they say is holy, 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 holy over and over because there's nothing they can say about him. It's beyond description. He's different. See, what moves us from functioning to fearing it's this seeing. See, to go from functioning and just kind of going through the motions to a fear of the Lord that's in awe and wonder is this. It, you have to see yourself for who you really are. See, Uzzah had become so familiar with the things of God, he, he didn't even see himself anymore. He couldn't see God and he couldn't see himself. He, his self-awareness was gone. He didn't realize the depths of his sin, the depths of his brokenness. When, when you start to see that, there's this strange thing that happens. The more you see about who you really are, the more you see about who God really is. And then you start to open your eyes to see, wow, he is so faithful, and yet I am unfaithful. He is so selfless and loving, and yet I am so selfish and greedy. He is so holy, and yet I'm so unholy. And, and you start to see the gap between you and God widen and widen and widen. And then you start to wonder, how could I ever be near to this God? And that's where awe begins to happen. It's right there. And th this is what, what David finds out later. How do these two come together, the unholy and the holy? If, if God really is so different, what does he do 
for that problem. And so lastly, we've got to look at the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice of God. Look at verse 9. This is incredible. It says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now David starts to realize this gap, and his first response is, Oh my goodness, this is terrifying. And so David's first response, actually, we, we skip this part, but he gets angry at first. He's angry because Uzzah died, and assuming he, he knows Uzzah, and how could this happen? You're ruining the party, God. He's angry, but then he becomes afraid, and it's the wrong kind of fear. It's the fear of punishment. It's the fear of judgment, and, and he's just terrified, and he says, I, I don't want anything to do with this. I thought this was going to be a blessing, and so I don't know who Obed-Edom is, but he got the bad end of the stick here because he said, okay, throw it to his house. He, I'm not bringing this to Jerusalem. And so he sends it over to his house. Well, then, surprise, surprise, God blesses Obed-Edom's house, and now everything's flourishing and thriving over there. And people come to David, and they say, hey, this is going really well for him. You know about that? And David's like, oh, well, I guess, I guess there can be a way for God to be present and not everybody die. And so David realizes there, there's something here. How does that happen? And so he says, okay, we got to bring it back to Jerusalem, but this time it's going to be different. Look at what happens in verse 13 as they go a second time to bring it. It says, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he, that's David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, the ark makes it this time. The ark makes it and everyone erupts in worship again. Now they're dancing, now they're singing, they're celebrating because God has come to Jerusalem and no one died this time. This time it's a celebration. This time God's favor is with us. His presence among, is among us. What's the difference? Notice, first of all, there's no cart, there's no oxen. But even more than that, did you notice they couldn't go six steps without realizing, wait a minute, we got to make a sacrifice. Wait, wait a minute. We, we have to make sure that, that we are right with God. And David, you, you can almost miss it in the text, but if you know the Old Testament, you notice what he's wearing is important. It says it that he's wearing a linen ephod. That's the outfit of the priest. And so here's the king wearing a priest's outfit. The kingly priest who, who decides, you know what, I'm going to take the place of the priest. I'm going to take the role of the priest, and I'm going to step in, and I'm going to make the sacrifice to God. And so he takes the sacrifice, and he sprinkles the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which, or the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the mercy seat. And when he sprinkles the blood, the blood is representing that there's been a sacrifice to take the place of another person. There's been a blood of the sacrifice that's taken the place of the blood of the people. And because of this exchange, they're safe. Because of this exchange, they can celebrate. Because of this exchange, they can stand back in awe and dance and sing and rejoice because God is safe with them and they are safe with God. See, David's sacrifice points towards another priestly king, Jesus, the son of David. But he too would offer a sacrifice for his people, bringing the unholy close to the holy. But his sacrifice wouldn't be a sacrificial animal. It would be himself. 
the perfect spotless lamb. See, on the cross, Jesus shed his blood for our sin and shame, for our guilt and grime. On the cross, Jesus sprinkled his blood across your past, across your present, across your future. Jesus was saying, I'm making the unholy holy. I'm making the unholy near to this God who wants them, this God who loves them, this God who wants to be close to them, but needs this blood. See, when you know what it took for us to be safe, you can lift up your voice and sing. You can lift up your hands and shout. You can break out the tambourines. You can lift up your hearts and rejoice with all your might because God has made a way. God has made a way for the unworthy. He's made a way for the unholy. He's made a way for the undeserving. That way, the only way, is through the blood of Jesus. See, true worship takes refuge from God in God. In God, that's the way that God is satisfied. That's the way that God's presence can be with us is when we find ourselves hidden in Jesus, covered in his blood, covered in the sacrifice of God himself for us. That's where there's refuge. That's where there's safety. That's where there's rejoicing, the one who's died in our place. And so the question as we close is, do you need to take refuge in him today? Refuge from all that's in your life, He's inviting us into this leaping and dancing and singing and rejoicing presence of God. He's inviting us into a relationship with him that isn't dangerous. See, life apart from Jesus is truly dangerous. But life in Jesus is the safest place you can be. And he invites us in and he says, the way you come into my life, the way you come into my refuge, into my safety is by putting your faith and your trust in me. It's by putting your your whole life surrendered to me. It's saying, I don't want to worship these other things anymore. I want to worship you, God. I want to repent of my sin. I want to come to you. I know I'm unworthy. I know I'm undeserving. I know I don't deserve to be in your presence. But because of what Jesus has done, shedding the blood for me, sprinkling his blood on me to make the unholy holy, now I can enter in. Now I can be safe in you. He invites us into that. Let's go to him together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we take refuge in you. We find our safety and security in you alone. Lord Jesus, we we, we, we can be overwhelmed with gratitude as we think back and imagine you on the cross without any shelter, without any refuge, taking on the full wrath of God for us, for our sin, for our bitterness and anger and all the greed, all the selfishness, all the pride and everything, God. You took it upon yourself, Lord. You bore the full weight of our sin. So now we can be safe, safe, hidden in you. Lord Jesus, may you give us that affirmation, that confidence, that courage that comes from knowing we're in you. May you turn us towards you to give you our full attention. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.